Hi, welcome to One Degree Shifts, where we explore the beautiful and lifelong journey of psychedelicness and integration with leaders in the psychedelic space. My name is Pascal Tremblay, and I'm the co-founder of Nectar, we're a psychedelic support ecosystem. And today we're joined by Amanda Eftimu. Amanda is an advisor to Nectara, and she's a psychedelic integration advocate and educator, and she's the founder of Integra, which helps retreats and facilitators create a culture of integration in their companies and, and in their experiences. And she sits on the board of El Puente, which bridges modern science with indigenous wisdom, and so creating reciprocity for those communities. And she's also part of Woven Science, which helps incubate and support early stage psychedelic companies. Amanda also holds a neuroscience degree, and her passion is bridging the science and the sacred and bridging the psychedelic space with beautiful integration programming and support. Hi, Amanda, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much, Pascal. It's really a pleasure. How did, um, how did you get here, Amanda? What's your story? How did you um, end up working on Integra and Woven and um, El Puente and all these beautiful things that you're up to? I'd love to hear more uh, of that backstory. So my journey in the sacred plant medicine and psychedelic space began um, around eight years ago. So I was someone who entered this world, not perhaps traditionally through um, experimenting as a teenager with different forms of psychedelics and then wanting to go deeper. In fact, I was someone who growing up in the US, I was suffering from anxiety and I was taking all forms of pharmaceutical drugs. And it turns out later I realized that I was doing so to really uh, treat uh, symptoms rather than addressing really what was the root cause of the, the issues that I was having. And so I, I was living in New York at the time and I met this wonderful community of people who were doing things a bit differently. I had never really done meditation before or I had been starting with yoga and other practices, but it was still new to it. And they showed me uh, different ways of taking my power back essentially and being able to start looking at different ways to, to heal and to make myself well again. And so I entered this world of, of plant medicine and needless to say, it opened the door. It by no means is any cure, but it really showed me the way and um, brought a lot of autonomy back to my personal healing process. And so I kind of put that to the back of, back of my mind for a while. And I went back to working with, with startups and with tech companies, but I've been a long time mental health advocate. And I've always been talking about how mental health is really one of the most important pillars of our lives. And so I decided to look back at what actually helped me in my mental health journey. And I wanted to understand the scientific and academic perspectives of, of plant medicines, of psychedelics, so to speak. So I did this uh, master's program in neuroscience where I wanted to understand how we can integrate these plant medicines with traditional therapies. And so I chose uh, doing some research around people with depression and anxiety, something that I can myself relate with, and how we can weave those two uh, modalities together. And it was around that time that I met the founders of Woven Science. And after hearing about what they were doing and also the foundation that they were developing, I decided to jump right in and work with them. And as I was doing so with Woven and El Puente, which we'll talk about, I also realized that there's, there's a real gap uh, currently in the psychedelic space where right now we're really, really focused on drug development and on how you know the different compounds that are being created to address these mental illnesses and other other issues that people are having and i realized that we're not looking at how we're actually integrating these transformational experiences <laughs> and <Yes>. so <laughs> exactly so i said okay well you know the industry is really focused on this but what about integration and so that's where i've also launched my company called integra which is focused on uh developing integration pathways for different um all sorts of transformational containers of experience so they can be psychedelic non-psychedelic can be any form of a journey that you're going on uh, for personal transformation. And so that's a little bit of, of how I got here. Beautiful. Thanks for sharing. And thanks for, um, 
you know, bring the word integration and so many things that you're doing, like it, it is, it is a key thing. And it is something that of course, Nectar is working on as well. And the more people that work on it, the better. I think there's a massive wave of people that are going to engage with the medicines coming up and um, having the proper support systems in place are going to be a real key to fulfill the true promise of the psychedelic space. So um, thank you for working on that and spending your energy on, on such a thing. Um, and you mentioned the foundation from Woven uh, El Puente. I'd love to hear more about its mission and 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 what what is it doing in the world right now, and what's it what's its vision? Yeah, so El Puente. So we are a nonprofit foundation, and essentially we are creating a model of reciprocity and regeneration for the psychedelic sector. And we do that by facilitating access and benefit sharing with indigenous communities. So essentially, we're a bridge between the sacred traditions and wisdom of indigenous um, of indigenous wisdom with the modern application of psychedelic therapy. And so we do that uh, beginning with participatory planning and reparations, first and foremost, since we need to really begin with reparations before committing to this concept of reciprocity, which I'm sure we can talk about. Um, mm -hmm. And then we do that by also facilitating grants and investments into indigenous owned and operated projects that promote biocultural preservation, ecological restoration of endangered ecosystems, environmental education programs, and different kinds of sustainability initiatives to help create and uh, sustain resilient communities. And we largely work in um, with indigenous communities that specifically steward state sacred plant medicines around around the world. Our focus right now is on South America. So we're working with indigenous communities based in Brazil and Ecuador and Colombia and in Peru. Mm -hmm. And how does the foundation support the communities? How do you go about doing that? Yeah, so our foundation, we're, we're guided by four pillars. Uh, sovereignty, um, education, regeneration, and reciprocity. And these pillars are sort of our method of guiding these, these uh, projects that we're, we're implementing. And so the first with, with sovereignty, it's really this acknowledgement recognition of indigenous rights and territories beyond uh, a colonial conception of inclusion. And instead, we're acknowledging indigenous rights to self-determination. Uh, we do this by developing really comprehensive stakeholder engagement process, long-term agreements with people on the ground that are needed to support the recovery of indigenous lands, languages, and ecosystems. On an education side, we are supporting the knowledge transfer and sharing of practices between bioregions, communities, organizations. So we do that by facilitating training, certifications, workshops um, in person at these uh, indigenous communities themselves. And with regeneration, mm -hmm. so this is where we are uh, sponsoring regenerative projects for ecological restoration. And we do that through creating ethnobotanicals reserves, which is sort of our key model for applicating all four of our pillars together for the benefit of these communities. And with reciprocity, this is sort of our model of exchange that's amplifying the local businesses and distributing the resources to the projects that are owned by and directed by these indigenous communities. So it's not just about financial returns, it's about the biodiversity returns, how can we amplify and sustain these ecosystems? It's about creating integrated working teams with indigenous leaders, with local stakeholders, with research institutions, and ultimately we wanna create self-sustainability within the communities themselves. So we're really about processes, first and foremost, mm -hmm. before we work on projects. I think there's um, there's this notion of just, you know, a, maybe like a colonial philanthropic model where we go in, we have, you know, one or two different projects, we raise capital, we distribute the funds, we kind of put everything in place and then we walk away. So we're not interested in doing that. We're leading with an indigenous mindset. My co-director, he is an indigenous man, uh, mestizo indigenous from Argentina. And we are on the ground. We're leading by listening. We go and we're first and foremost, humbly listening to what it is that these indigenous communities need 
and what's the best way to help them achieve their goals. And so we're implementing these processes. And then if that means there's a specific project that's needed that they want support in either to create these ethnobotanical reserves or a retreat center or an education program for the urban indigenous youth um, outside of the outside of their aldeas or outside of their of their lands deep in the rainforest there's there's many different ways that we're looking at it so it's a very bottoms up approach of really empowering indigenous people to make their own decisions and listening to the communities basically um really reminds you of the Sacred Headwaters Project uh, from the mm -hmm. Pachamama Alliance and like how they've been also doing the same model. And I really love that. And um, Chikuna's uh, Indigenous Reciprocity Initiative also has a very similar approach, which um, I love as well. Um, what is the relationship with your work and the plant medicines? Um, and, and what did you see as an organization that you were wanting to solve really in terms of the relationship between Indigenous communities and plant medicines and, and the world uh, beyond that? What, what were you seeing that, that kind of um, motivated you to create this organization? Yeah, so what we saw is, you know, with this advent of a renaissance, so to speak, of psychedelics, in which I would even add uh, um, about the word renaissance. Um, when I was recently in the Amazon now in Acre in Brazil, I was speaking with one of the directors of a conference that um, I attended with indigenous communities uh, represented. It was an indigenous-led conference with about 300 leaders from around um, South America. One of the directors of the conference said, you know, it's never it, renaissance like implies that something had died and is now being reborn. Uh, for them, this has never been anything that's ever died away. The plants have always been part of their lives, their culture, their identity. There's no renaissance to them. It's a continuation. And so Absolutely. this is something that really stuck with me. And, you know, but with this advent of this word and this resurgence, so to speak, in, in Western cultures, we're really interested in these plants and we want to, we want to go deeper with them. And so part of what we do at Woven is we're, we're really investing in this ecosystem. We want to understand how people are going to be engaging with psychedelics, plant medicines across their, we call a treatment arc. But what does that mean? That means potentially we're, we're using medicines that are being um, cultivated outside of the area that we live. You know, you can say something about magic mushrooms. They can be grown. Perhaps they have origins you know, with the Mazatec but they can be grown in our own backyard in many cases. But specifically something like ayahuasca, that has its origins in the Amazon region. And so we're interested in not just our own use of these medicines, but what does it actually mean for these, these communities, ultimately for sustaining their culture, their identity, and for sustaining the ecosystems. We know that the indigenous are stewarding I don't know, there's a percentage about how they make up a you know, single digit percentage of the population, but they're stewarding more than 80% of the world's biodiversity. And so what is our role in that as an industry? So this is something that we really thought about and we wanted to do that led from an indigenous mindset and not in a traditional philanthropic sort of perspective in the way perhaps some others in more traditional nonprofit uh, models are working in. Mm -hmm. And what are you seeing in the communities? Like, what are they saying? And <clears throat> what I've, what I've heard is there's a lot of communities that um, have had to have economical benefits from plant medicines. And at the, the sake of doing that have, you know, been, uh, you know, changing the, the fabric of their culture a little bit in the way their society works. Um, what have you seen and heard from different communities around plant medicine use and how it's changed their communities? Definitely. So I would say that some communities, when I do speak of some of these perspectives, it is first and foremost, my, my interpretation and my perspective of what I've heard and seen. And that's also sort of a fundamental difference in how we talk about um, indigenous traditions, perspectives, cosmovision. So from my perspective of what I've heard, um, and also acknowledging that these indigenous communities are not all jumbled into one sort of bucket, but they're very much coming from different perspectives. Uh, it's a very complex sort of uh, tapestry, so to speak. 
Um, but for some of them, it's been highly beneficial for them to be able to bring their medicine out into other areas. They themselves are, are coming to the United States, to Europe, further on, even into Asia. And they're doing these plant ceremonies, obviously in an underground context. And for them, it's a source of, as you say, it's a, a source of, of financial sustainability. They bring these back to their aldeas and then they can create these retreat centers locally uh, that they can then attract people. So there's this, there is this, this reciprocal model in that way. For some other communities, they're really against bringing the medicine outside of the, the Amazon. And they want people, they say, if you want to come, you come to us and we leave. And if you choose to do so outside, then leave these sort of these plants alone and find other ways of doing medicine that's not specifically the ones coming from where, from the Amazon. So very, very different uh, perspectives. I would also add that for, for many of the communities, this really goes beyond um, plant medicine, so to speak, in terms of where their, their core issues are at the moment. One of the, um, at this conference, one of the people who spoke, his name is Alex Ocitante from the Cofan community in Ecuador. He, you know, I spoke with him after and I asked, so you're coming from so many different uh, communities, so many different perspectives. And what is it that's bringing you all here together that's uniting you? So how, how, how do you all see things the same, if at all? Is there one thing that you can sort of unite on and agree on? And he said, look, for us, it's about territory. Without territory, we don't have our identity. That identity, we don't have territory. So for them, it's really about the reclaiming of their territory and having the right to the lands that they're living on. And so what I noticed is that for them, there, there is, of course, a deep connection with these plant medicines, but there's a, there's a larger sort of theme here, and that is their land, their right to live and their right to their lands. And so that's also why we're at El Puente, we're really working on ecosystems, restoration, conservation, and reforestation efforts, because we see that it's beyond just reforesting uh, ayahuasca vines, for example, but it's actually about planting trees and uh, teacher plants of all kinds uh, so that we can have a, a stronger ecosystem. And an ecosystem that can, like I like to um, to talk about psychedelics as if it was Mother Earth's defense immune system and helping us kind of connect to different teachings and different ways of the world that um, can help us get over the kind of societal issues that we've been having. That creating a new paradigm is kind of like the the narrative of, of psychedelics often is creating a new paradigm. And a lot of that new paradigm, like a lot of the stuff that's part of this new paradigm has been around for a long, long time. These are like uh, truths that were, you know, discovered and, and felt and experienced for thousands of years before we came along and experienced psychedelics. And so there's with Woven and, and El Puente and kind of the conversations we've had, there's a lot of talk about weaving in uh, indigenous wisdom into modern living and science and research. And as a neuroscientist yourself, um, doing the work you're doing, you're doing that, you know, as a part of your purpose. Um, and why do you think this is happening now? What this emergence or um, I don't want to use the word renaissance, like you said, it's not the right word, but this reemergence of kind of the indigenous wisdom ways into the modern living. Yeah, there's a couple of thoughts I have around that. The first is this, I think we're starting to realize that what we really need above all things is, or what we really want above all things is connection. And we're looking to reconnect with ourselves, with others, with our loved ones, with the world around us. I think we're we're increasingly being sort of sucked into this modern world of way too much technology that's making us more isolated, things like COVID that just kept us at home. We're becoming more antisocial. We're unable to sort of relate to others in the, in, the, in real life context. And so we're looking for deeper connection and we're looking for ways to do that. And often, you know, psychedelics have come on as sort of this big shock to the system of giving us a dose of what we, we have never experienced before that one of the effects of is reconnecting more deeply with ourselves. And I feel that what I've observed and what we see with indigenous wisdom is they're, they're 
intrinsic connection with the natural world. And, you know, for many, many indigenous languages don't have a word for nature because for them, they are nature. Nature is them. There's, there's no um, break there. And so they're, you know, they, they're about living in harmony with nature and the balance between them and, and their, the, the world that they're in. And so mm-hmm. we're looking for that too. And, um, in some way, that's perhaps a way that we can, we can learn from their, their relationships that they have to their environment. So in one way we have connection, of course. And then another way that there's this sort of connection here with psychedelics and even with wisdom traditions is this concept of ritual and intention, intention and ritual. So for them, they have a very specific ritual depending on the, the community that they're coming from and their particular tradition and their cosmovision. And we also have rituals where we, our rituals are often going to a doctor for our yearly checkup. That is, that is a ritual that many of us do. And so there's nothing wrong with bringing a, a, our, a context that we're comfortable with. For example, if that means more in a clinical environment, taking a psilocybin, um, mushroom capsule with the presence of a psychotherapist or a psychiatrist or doing ketamine assisted therapy with the presence of a, of a therapist. Um, these are ways of creating, um, a setting, a set and setting that we're really comfortable with. And it can be done in, in a ritualized context, as long as we have the sort of intention placed, I could, we could call it we could make it a sacred intention, but sacred could have different connotations. But um, yeah, it's this marrying, I think, of intention and ritual that we can really connect with with some of these wisdom traditions. I read in a book um, a couple of years ago that um, our alphabet, you know, the English or alphabet, um, the letters used to represent different animals or different forms of pieces of nature, like, you know, plants and things like that and over time the alphabet actually started changing to like have no relationship whatsoever to the symbols of nature and the animals and so in our language itself that this connection has been built into the language that we're using the way we're forming words and the way we're writing them there's been a break away from nature like hundreds of years ago and i found that very interesting that language can um change culture like that and you know which one came first, the chicken or the egg, right? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> and yeah, you, but now we're discovering like that, like you said so well, like that this connection to ourselves and others in the web of life, it's really at the core of all of our, of our ailments, I believe. Um, and um, what does it look like then to have a, a modern world woven into um, indigenous wisdom or wisdom traditions as well and, and kind of reformulating the way that we've been living uh, from a more, uh, intentional, ceremonial, um, and connected way. What, what is the vision of that? Yeah, for me personally, I mean, it would be wonderful if psychedelics were one of the many tools, because there are many, and we also cannot um, sort of generalize and, and kind of put psychedelics as this, you know, cure-all, panacea of, of, of goodness and greatness for everyone. And that's going to solve everyone's problems, but it's one of the many tools in our toolbox that if we actually look within and uncover the different tools, yeah, what I see is that that's, that's a conduit for us having that reconnection. And what does it look like to have these traditions woven into our life? we start to create our own stories. We start to create our own rituals. We start to, to create habits that become sacred in, in and of themselves that we then pass on to our families, to our loved ones. We, we rediscover this harmony with nature, even if nature is in our local park and it's, we live in a concrete jungle in a big city, but we find these little elements that we can still reconnect to our origins, to our ancestry. And, create new relationships with these places. If we can do that with intention and we can pass that on and we can take a moment to just pause, I think that we can, mm. we can be far more compassionate and kind individuals and, and 
more intentional with what we do. It's a, it's a tough one. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of beautiful things can come from reconnecting and yeah. I think for, for us, it was experienced the psychedelic experience. I, for me, the most healing moments I have in, in group ceremonies is yeah, the experience is beautiful, but um, what I love is the shared humanity that goes around the circle when you're mm-hmm. sharing and creating ceremony and intention around um, the experience is that you realize that you're not so much different than other people. And we've all got stuff to carry and we've all got like stories and pain and joy. And um, ultimately we all want the same things we want clean air. We want clean water. We want community. We want purpose. We want harmony. Um, and so when you connect with that feeling, I've, I've found that to be the most healing part of my journey has been just to reconnect with that shared humanity. Um, and beyond that, just re- using that as a way to reconnect with the world around me in a way that's uh, connected and not separate. And I ultimately, you know, for me, the vision is very similar is just reconnecting with the, the entire web of life and understanding that, uh, uh, like Ramdas says, while well, walking the, ourselves back home. Um, I really like that as a, um, and the benefits from that, of course, like you said, more compassion, more empathy, uh, more connected, more purpose, uh, more alignment and more joy and laughter. Um, you know, we're, we're community-based people and we love to gather around the fire and just share and, and just be normal and be human together. And I find that by itself to be the most healing part of the, me- the medicine journey. Um, so when you're creating a harmonious, like, let's imagine that we're creating this harmonious paradigm uh, where, you know, spirit meets science and, and where wisdom meets logic. Um, what do you think needs to happen in the world for, uh, for, society to move towards that what are the key pieces that you see like as uh, engines of that that change like psychedelics being one of them what are the other kind of modalities and and things that uh, maybe we've been missing as a whole to sort of answer this with with a, a different perspective i think what what can sustain let's say we find these modalities we have psychedelics we 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 find these other tools of personal transformation we we uncover ways that can also have a, a top down that, you know, change needs to happen top down and bottom up as well. Like we need to meet a little bit in the middle. And so let's say we, we find the right avenues towards affecting leadership to create different policies and changes within government as well. Um, I do believe in the power of these big institutions and creating new, new infrastructures and frameworks for us to, to live in doesn't, yes, of course it comes from grassroots activism and it comes from entrepreneurship and, and whatnot. But when the two marry, when you have entrepreneurship and government and policy working together to make solutions. So let's say we're doing all of this. We can have all this wonderful utopia front in front of us where we're starting to do group and collective transformation and healing. But if we're not integrating, then it falls flat. And this is something that I'm seeing as one of the big um, points that we should be looking at now is actually how we're going to be integrating all of this wisdom that we're getting from within us, not even wisdom that we receive from going into the jungle. Most of us don't have access to this. That's not the most sustainable option either. It's not about necessarily when we're a bridge between wisdom and science, we're also bridging that within us, right? So when we get that inner wisdom and we see that peak experience and we're at the top of the mountain after going through this incredible psychedelic journey or breathwork journey or whatever the journey is, if we're not integrating that and actually bringing that back into our daily lives, creating new habits, changing our mindsets, shifting our relationships that, that are, that have been challenging for us. Um, as leaders, if we're not implementing these, these, these insights into the way that we lead in our companies for our employees or colleagues, if we're not making these changes in our behaviors that affect our environment from a sustainability perspective, then we're not going to actually make true lasting change, right? So I do feel that integration is a really, really key component for us to actually achieve this world where these things are in harmony and in balance. Yes. And not being attached to the bigness of things, you know, like the new paradigm. Yeah. And it sounds really, like you said, utopian yeah. and everything. It's a huge thing. But then like, what can I do right now to like oh. embody that new paradigm? Like, how am I sitting right now? Like, how am I breathing? How am I um, 
hosting a podcast right now. Like that's all integration, you know, it's, that's the everyday stuff that really ends up building this new paradigm. So I find a lot of, of peace in, in the word devotion rather than discipline, you know, like having mm. a devotion to the small things that can create the big things and not being like, oh, I need to have it all figured out right now. That's been really helpful for me. Um, yeah. So bring it down to the basics helps bring utopias to life. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah, I, like um, I want to shift gear a little bit and come back a bit to the indigenous um, element. And, you know, I think we've all heard about um, cultural appropriation in the space and um, kind of the way, you know, people are hosting ceremonies or the songs they're singing and like, are they acknowledging the teachers or like, is this okay to be doing in this space? Like, am I allowed to do that? Um, you know, there's a lot of like different nuances of uh, kind of learning from indigenous communities um, and then bringing that back home in some way, like within ourselves and as people holding spaces or, or being therapists or coaches or ceremonialist people. Um, so I'd like to open up the topic around uh, cultural appropriation and versus appreciation of the cultures and then uh, the attribution as well. Um, can you speak about those, those nuances and um, you know, what is your perspective on those things? Yeah, that's a really great point. And that actually, that's something I myself, I'm still uncovering and learning. It's a deep process. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's first that acknowledgement that it's, it's going to take a lot more listening before I can sort of fully say like, this is how the standard of, you know, what is appropriation, what is not. But I would say that there's, there's elements there that maybe some of us in our, in the West or the global North or however it is that we call us um, that we may not be fully aware of or conscious of. So for example, you know, when we're, when we're undergoing these, these beautiful ceremonies, when we go straight to the jungle, for example, we go and we have a ritual and a ceremony and we're not, we're participants, we're doing a dieta. We experience a very traditional way of doing uh, plant medicine, let's say with ayahuasca, for example, and we are connecting with the with the indigenous there, with the shamans, and we see their beautiful feathers, and we want to be able to have a memory of this and take this home with us and wear the feathers and be you know wear the materials, the jaguar teeth that these shamans, these pages are wearing after they've spent years in the forest, and you know. For us, we come from a more of a consumer culture where, you know, we, we, we have this want for these objects. And even if we have complete reverence for using them and outside of that context, there is an element of appropriation there. And, and specifically with certain items like feathers and jaguar teeth, for example, these are contributing, even if these indigenous communities are selling them to us, they are still contributing to a commercialization of items that are coming from animals that perhaps initially when they are picking the feathers, they come from, for example, birds that have already died and that have fallen, but now they're starting to kill the birds, for example, to take the feathers. So this is something that we need to be mindful of that is beyond just you know, appropriating a certain cosmovision, but it's actually, if we're going to dress a certain way, what is, what is the impact that we're actually having on these communities? Perhaps the, yes, they will be receiving a financial compensation immediately. So that's the immediate gain for them. But what is actually the long-term impact from a uh, sustainability perspective? And so when we're there's another concept of, I think, when we're talking about, ah, the, as I mentioned before, an indigenous perspective, this is what the indigenous feel, this is, you know, this is their cosmovision, um, even the eagle condor prophecy, for example, is something that we reference a lot, and it's very much part of their, some of their cosmovision, but again, it's not everyone, every indigenous community's um, story. And so what I've started to now learn to do is if I'm working with these communities, I'm taking very strong note of the people, the very, the name of the person, the community that they come from, and very much this is an attribution of this specific person's perspective. It's not, they are not representing, they are not even representing their community, let alone the entire indigenous sort of worldview, right? So it's also about taking extra care to attribute. And yeah, the nuances of 
you know, the modern day um, um, spiritual leaders who are working and doing dietas and doing uh, deep uh, work with these leaders who are not indigenous and then serving medicine um, in, in our Western contexts. I don't have a personal answer yet to what, you know, if that's, there's no right or wrong in my view to this because everyone has an indigenous uh, individual path and I cannot generalize in any way, but um, there is, there is a bit of these nuances there. And I would also add that we, we can't romanticize any form of sort of indigenous perspective where there's, there, there's complexities with all of us. Um, there's just as we might disagree on the way of using a specific medicine and Western medicine, whether or not it's good for us, et cetera, there's certainly complexities there. So we, we cannot say that, um, every indigenous from every community has their, you know, our best interests at heart and in, in undergoing certain experiences and all of this. And I would also say that there's, there's this, when we speak of indigenous, especially in the psychedelic space, there's been an emphasis on um, the, the communities, let's say in the US, which is where the psychedelics uh, sort of renaissance is really unfolding at a more rapid pace. Um, there's, this, there's this emphasis on giving back and reciprocity towards communities outside of the US. So for example, South America, for El Puente is focusing on this region or in Africa and et cetera. And there's almost an erasure of the Native Americans that are coming from the U.S. and Canada and North American countries and Mexico. And what about what about the communities from these lands? So it seems like we're almost mm -hmm. we're we're just ignoring this very very large part of our history. I mean, only recently did the U.S. change Columbus Day to Indigenous Peoples Day, for example. So. I'm sure you can speak to that as well. Um, given well, in Canada, yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, there's still indigenous communities here in Canada don't have like clean drinking water, which is a real shame and just a yeah. you know a real you know given Canada is one of the richest countries in the world. Like, how is that happening? Um, but there is, you're right, like a very deep wounding that hasn't been fully healed and acknowledged in the the collective space. And you know, you feel it in the energies around. You know, like if you're connected to community. You know, I believe, you know, conversations like this and ideas that the El Puente is putting forward and, and other people in the space are putting forward are, you know, itching away a little bit, inching away towards like reparation and, and deep healing and wounding. And it's, it's going to take time because it's a big piece. There's a lot of work for all of us to do around. Absolutely. And I would say one of the organizations that's doing really amazing work specifically in, in North America is our, our friends, the Indigenous Medicine Conservation Fund. Um, they are um, indigenous led. The, the current sort of logistical and operational directors are uh, represented from ICERS and from River Sticks Foundation. They kind of came together and they have this this uh, organization called IMC, and they work with sort of the, the five medicine lines and one of them being with peyote. And they're doing really, really deep on the ground stakeholder engagement with Native American uh, communities that use peyote. And so this is their wonderful organization that's also acknowledging that there's been this sort of erasure of you know, we're talking about, we think of psych plant medicines, we go immediately to ayahuasca, we go immediately to South America, and then we sort of ignore what's under our noses in North America, at least. So um, I just mm -hmm. want to give a shout out to them and the work that they're doing. Yeah, and you can support them by supporting Grow Medicine, which is their exactly. kind of philanthropic or reciprocity-based uh, organization. Yeah, that's one way to contribute. Um, you mentioned the word romanticization earlier. Um, and in our, uh, our show notes, you, you mentioned the romanticization of the shamanic space and what does that mean? I'd love for you to expand on, on that concept. Yeah. So it's this concept of, because it might work in, in there, in a, in a indigenous origin for, for a specific group of people to, to have healing or a deeper understanding of their relationship to the world around them in that context that it might work for everyone in every situation. So there's a reason why there's this 
medical movement here that's happening, this clinical perspective that's growing in the West. And yes, part of that is the, we, we, we work based on science and research and scientific evidence. And it's also a really easy way to sort of remove the stigmas around using psychedelics as a tool for healing. It starts with that. Um, and also an acknowledgement that not all psychedelics are based naturally. You have some that are synthesized in a lab, so it lends itself to easier use um, in a clinical context. But it's more just to say that, you know, we have different set and setting and different contexts for healing that we shouldn't um, try and label one as superior uh, than another, just because perhaps one of these plant medicines has an origin in that container of use. So yeah, it's, it's more of that kind of romanticization of the shamanic experience and also of, of psychedelics in general, of it being this magic pill, this magic tool for healing. It's not for everyone. Um, there are many different tools, as I said before, in the toolkit, and that's one of them. Yeah, I remember like years and years ago when I was a younger man, I would say like, oh, we should totally put MDMA in the water supply. Like that would totally help all our problems. <laughs> no, it's not. That's not good, Pascal. That's not a good idea at all. It's not going to help solve everything. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Might create more problems, actually. Uh, you mentioned ritual earlier. Um, there has been a largest connection with, with this ceremony and kind of the sacredness of it. Uh, of life really in the, in the Western world. Um, can you talk a bit more about the importance of weaving in that ceremony and sacredness into our daily life? Yeah. Um, well, it's my belief that ceremony and sacredness while rooted perhaps with an intention, with an individual intention that helps us ground into why it is that we're really embarking on this path. It's also really connected to, as you also alluded to earlier, it's, it's connected to collective healing, collective transformation. So how we heal individually is how we transform collectively. That's, I really believe in that. And, um, that's groups coming together to sit in circle, to sit in, however it is, is a sacred act. And it's been done in many different ways in many different contexts and in various cultures around the world for hundreds, thousands of years, we've been sitting in circle and we've been just sitting by a fire or having a conversation or telling stories, oral traditions that there's, there's a lot of history there for many, many different cultures. And so where am I going with this? I guess for, for me, there's, there's a, a real connection there. And so how we can weave that into our lives, is finding more spaces for sharing and for collective work, for, for working together as groups. Um, how do we do that without psychedelics? Um, I myself have been working with women for many, many years. I do sharing circles and we work in different cycles. And just by hearing the stories of women and what they're going through in a particular moment in time, that is a mirror to my own, to my own, processes what I'm going through and I'm healing just by listening to the other person. And that is a very sacred act is this deep listening. When we're deeply listening, so much can come through. Um, I myself really experienced that now when I was in, in Brazil and Acre, I spent a week of hours and hours of deep listening. There's nothing to say. There was nothing for me to do or to act. I really had to shift my way of, of, of being from this sort of maybe this more Western modern way of just having, okay, I received this information. What am I going to do with this information? It's like, no, we just listen. That's sacred. And, um, we take the time to slow down, to have patience with ourselves, with what we're listening to, with what we say. So there's, there's, there's a lot there, uh, that I hope that our modern, the modern age, or the age of technology uh, can help us. Um, there is technology that's helping us revisit this. Not all technology, of course, is bad. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, I have hope for this 
this new paradigm, as you mentioned as well. There was a man where I sat in circle like the summer and I, his words stuck to me and he said, um, honor the spirit of the words before they mm -hmm. leave your mouth. Like really honor the spirit of the words before speaking. Um, if I could spend the rest of my life working on that and just like really like focusing on that, um, I can see lots of transformation happening to just communicate and express and deep listening um, just in all relationships, not just with other people outside, but also within ourselves, right? Like listening to ourselves and the nature around us as well, like deep listening. Um, that's a beautiful idea to, to explore for ourselves. Um, I'd love to talk about integration and wellness now. It's something that you're really passionate about. Uh, you've been talking about it for years. Um, how do we upgrade our wellness? What is the, what are the, the ways that we can do that? Like, what's your personal vision of how we upgrade our wellness, like from a societal level, but also maybe individually as well? How do we upgrade our wellness? Oh, doing that takes sometimes some hard truths, some real looking within. I don't know if society, all of society is fully ready for that kind of transformation. Um, yeah, we have to start looking at wellness and not illness, not disease. Um, it's not about waiting for the time when our bodies hit a burnout and a level of, of ill health that we need to then do something to change it. Upgrading our wellness is starting from wellness, not ending with wellness. It's going, mm. not going from shifting disease to wellness. It's all of, you know, this sort of symptoms based approach of treating what's going on. And then maybe you'll get well, we need to start from the beginning with this mentality of having a healthy and well-balanced life that takes a lot of shifts and how we make decisions. It takes a lot of sort of top down changes as well in the way that we do business you know, for even from things that are male cycle, the way, you know, circadian male rhythm with the female lunar cycle and how we work individually as women, there are some parts of the day, week, month that we're just, you know, our, our ways of making decisions are a little bit different. We follow a different cycle. And if we're forced, you know, me personally, if I'm forced into a sort of the, the masculine way of working, I'm not honoring my body. And then my body's going to react over time and it's going to, to be unwell. Just, just taking that personal example, but there's, we got to stop with the, you know, let's start covering things. And, you know, it's, it's really amazing to see um, these different tools now with biohacking and, and sort of what are the different nutritions and different pills and supplements that we can take. And that's wonderful and good. And that we're getting in that direction but I think as a society, we start need to start thinking of ourselves just to start building the habits of wellness from the beginning, from an early age. How do we educate our kids, reform the education system so that we can educate our kids in this way, right? Um, having them have more interaction, kids with nature and you know, if, if one child has, has a more excitement to working with their hands and being outside to let them do that and develop their skills in that way, that over time will lead them to have more, more resilience. They will, they will build that health within them and then they won't be forced into a box in a different, uh, in, in a system that doesn't serve them, which then leads them to be sick over time. So there's, there's a lot of things that need to change from the very beginning. And well, we can start, I think if we're going to be using things like psychedelics and going through these really profound transformational states, if we're integrating again, if we're really integrating what we're learning, we can create these systems for the next generation. And we can start now to, to make sure that wellness is starts from, from the beginning, as opposed to being an afterthought. I like that. Yeah. I like that a lot. Um, and it's such a key point too, of like starting with wellness, like you're right. We do have wellness at this idea of like, Oh, I'm going to reach wellness, but like, how do we start from that perspective of 
of um, you know honoring our bodies and and the time we're in and the seasons we're in and the energies that are around us and what's present you know what's being asked of me right now and what what am I what uh, what's my capacity for that as well um, those are really important questions um, that can be hard to untangle because we have had generations and generations of of people living in a very oppressive system that's kind of built in oppression in our nervous system and, and violence in a lot of ways. So like we're rewiring a lot of very big things, you know, like uh, being gentle for ourselves along the way that we don't have it all figured out right away. And that's okay. We're working towards something and uh, reframing very important things for the next generation. That is um, a real honor to be able to be growing up in this time um, where there's so many big lessons to be had and, for those that uh, want to receive them and also like like you said integrate them i think that's the key bridge between um you know this this old paradigm and this new paradigm of, of being um and as we're you know living and breeding the psychedelic space we've all seen kind of the um uh, extremes around that too around like chasing peak experiences and psychedelics are going to solve everything you know um, what would you like to say around um you know how do we look beyond psychedelics yeah, I ultimately, truthfully, I, I think psychedelics, they're here right now, especially the plant-based ones, the sacred plant medicines, they're, they're here now, but they may not be here. They're not, they, they, they may not be here very far into the future, right? So we're going to have to find ways to really look within. If we want to reach those peak experiences or those transformational moments, they have to come in, in from different sources and so beyond psychedelics is is thinking beyond this concept of of transformation that's induced by something that's that's outside of us um i think that there's a lot of people who you know you started mentioning this it's people are are using medicine to do the work there's this bypass you know spiritual bypass element where they do a ceremony and then they want to find an answer to this question that they got during the ceremony. So they do another ceremony to try and find the answer. And it's like, no, actually you don't need to keep going back. There's, there's that time and space and slowness and the, it, the work is really after the ceremony ends. That's when the medicine starts. I believe Tara really also fundamentally believes in that. And what's next? I mean, I think we're going to start looking at as an industry, what I see um, also working with Woven is, as I said before, there's this focus on drug development, but then what about the delivery and the infrastructure around sustainable, accessible use of psychedelics as a treatment, but also as a, as a tool for wellness. And that's, that's involving all the different elements that's involving, yes, the, the education and training of therapists and integration therapists, but also redefining what it means to go to a retreat center. Um, do we, do we bring these centers in urban areas? Do we make this more of like a, like a church 2.0 where we're going on a regular basis to a group, uh, like a center and then come back and it's more integrated into our life instead of something where we have to go very, very far away and have this very profound experience that is so disconnected from our reality. So I think what's beyond that sort of the psychedelic movement is bringing these experiences into the folds of our daily life. And they can be minor things like cultivating new practices, self-care practices, like a journaling practice, a meditation practice. They can be the creation of these community centers that are that are our tools for, for collective sharing and, and re-engaging with our, with the people that are close to us and to, our, to the people that, that ultimately shape our, our day-to-day -day life rather than sort of looking at the big picture all the time and always trying to have this macro view of everything. It's, it's about the day-to-day. -day. So that's part of it, I believe. Yeah, that's beautiful. Um, the micro also leading to the macro reconnecting with ourselves and others and the planet as well. Um, I believe ultimately, you know, we talked about this connection earlier that ultimately we all want to reconnect with those things. And there's a, a, a deeply seated desire for us to reconnect 
and reconnect. Mm -hmm. And so these daily little practices eventually lead to life itself being a ceremony. And, um, you know, like Alan Watts said, you get the phone call and eventually you get the message and you hang up. Um, mm -hmm. To me, that's kind of the ultimate goal of, of working with psychedelics for myself is I'm doing less and less ceremonies and I'm, I'm doing much more small things that I view as a little ceremony that I, you know, maybe I'm integrating my ceremony from six years ago by doing this little thing. I'm like, oh, I'm starting to get the message slowly, you know, and, and that feels really good to be able to kind of have this microdosing of integration uh, on an everyday level. And that slows me down so much. And I don't quite have this chase of the external anymore. I know that, like you said, you are the medicine. You know, I find that very beautiful to, to live life that way and, and, you know, how much beauty and nourishment and wisdom we can get from that perspective of not always looking outwards um, for the medicine we're looking for. Um, you touched around the industry um, and as we've been looking for funding as well, like we've been hearing from a lot of investors, like, no, we're actually investing in the biotech side. We're investing in the, the drugs and the patents and there's this new plant in Africa that kind of feels like MDMA with no side effects. There's like millions of dollars going into that. Um, and I want to shout on the top of all the rooftops. It's like, great. We have the medicine. We have the experiences. We have the retreat centers. You know, who's going to translate these things and help people translate these things into everyday sustainable change? Um, and so what's your perspective of the industry? And, and there's so many different um you know, aspects and, and nuances to the space, but what have you been seeing that you find interesting? Well, I do find the industry really fascinating. There was this sort of moment where everyone was pouring capital in because they were seeing all the studies and the research and there was this big trend and hype. And then we realized that from a drug development perspective, the Clinical trials take many, many years. It's not about having one or two studies that show, you know, statistically significant results, which therefore means that all other indications are also going to benefit from that medicine. These sort of this 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 model of drug development model, the investment model, takes time. It's very complex. Um, it's not for it's not for that investor who just wants to see the quick returns. So what's interesting about the industry now is I think there's this been this necessary correction and the people that are still here and that are really working in this industry and to create a strong foundation, they truly believe in the space. They're really here to stay from the entrepreneurs to the investors, to the nonprofits, to the likes of maps that have been doing things for a long time and they're doing amazing stuff and they've, you know, who would have thought that they'd be they'd be in the position that they are now, especially with MDMA. And so what I'm seeing is like, yes, there maybe was this little bit of a bubble and then there was a bit of fear and then the results didn't come back in enough time. And, you know, maybe it'll be 2024, 2025 before psilocybin becomes legal for depression or, or FDA approved rather for depression. And the, you know, the, or the, the discussions in Oregon are kind of, they're, not that they're, you know, they're, they're moving, but there's all kinds of complexity there and there's not this cookie cutter solution. And so, yeah, the industry, I believe is still strong. It might, we might be less individuals and people, but we are even stronger because we do believe in what's to come and, and the people are just fascinating and they really, there's all kinds of people in this industry. We have like indigenous activists and we have people who have, you know, who are tech entrepreneurs who are, you know, doing amazing mm. stuff with apps that are, that are like breath work related or meditation related. And then they also take psychedelics. So they're weaving that in and there's just all kinds of things happening. And there's this mm -hmm. resurgence of education for the therapists. There's so many people now who are looking to, to qualify themselves in this. And so I am very hopeful of a very strong industry in the future. Me too. I love the people in this space so much um, and the communities that are gravitating around different uh, ideas or, or projects. And um, to me, I came from an environmental conservation background and was really um, you know, working on campaigns to, you know, for example, stop oil pipelines or like, you know, raise up indigenous land rights in, in BC. And, uh, 
I found that that space wasn't my main purpose because I found that there was a lot of like pain within myself and others that was not healed. And so when I entered a psychedelic space, I realized that that was the most important thing for me to be spending the rest of my life working uh, on. And as I've been, you know, navigating and exploring the space, I've found so many people that are just in deep, deep, deep service mm. to humanity's unfoldment. I find that so humbling and so beautiful. And that's what really drives me forward is like meeting people like you and others that are uh, in deep service and selfless service to like the the highest potential of humanity and I found that very motivating and you're right like the people that are sticking around I've even had conversations with people you would qualify as like traditional VCs that are just like in deep dedication to the space and in deep dedication to the work that they're doing and, um, and yeah so I'm really energized by that too and I'm really excited about what's coming up and what's possible too in the next 10 years 15 years 20 years and and just how important the work that that's happening is is it's going to change, you know, for my son and other people, you know, for next generations and for, you know, the present moment as well. What would you like to say around like capital versus impact and um, kind of um, the fun, the funding that's happening right now, a lot of it is, is based on, um, yes, unfolding of the space and the human potential. There's also like a very strong capitalistic, and you mentioned kind of the bubble that happened and, um, what would you like to say around uh, kind of the balance between impact and, and capital in businesses? Yeah, I think there's, everyone is navigating things a bit different in the industry. Everyone has sort of a model that they're looking at. And um, I would say like specifically with, with how we're looking to as, as a nonprofit to receive. So what we're trying to do with El Puente specifically is when we say we want to be a model of reciprocity for the industry is we're interested in how other companies that also want to do good and they want to make impact, but they don't necessarily want to, for example, create their own foundation, do all this sort of on the ground work. They want to entrust specific entities that are really doing that and, and in a way contribute their capital. We, they do that through perhaps their equity, for example. So we're um, a model a vehicle for equity to be um, from, from not only woven, but also from our portfolio companies, for example. So if anyone is interested in allocating some of that capital into the foundation, they can do so. So there is you know, there is that sort of model as well. Um, I would say, yeah, for, I mean, I can only speak to what we're, what we're doing specifically with El Puente. I'm curious if you're, if you have some offerings and perspectives on that as well, as what you're doing with Nectara. Yeah, it's a good question. Like, for us, like the, the main thing we've always wanted to do is reflect the teachings of the medicine as much as possible within the mm -hmm. container of business. And so like really trying to have a regenerative business that uh, creates relationships that are win-win for everyone involved um, and not at the expense of our values and our, our purpose and our mission. So there's always kind of, um, there's a non-negotiable there around how we do business. We're an impact first company. Um, and at the same time, we need capital to grow. So, um, we've developed a model for ourselves that really works for, for our hearts and also works for uh, investors as well that, uh, you know, creates those win-win relationships with an eye on the highest level of, of impact that we can do. And um, trying to create a, a company that isn't a boom or bust unicorn that's going to fade away in 10 years, but more of like looking at creating a culture and a corporate structure really as well and legal framework to create an organization that can last for a hundred years, you know, uh, that goes way beyond the founders. I feel like psychedelic companies in general, uh, my personal view is that they should be um, of the highest integrity possible because we're, we're working with sacred medicines or working with secret teachings. And, um, yeah. you know, I think it's very important to have that integrity and, and sacredness built into the, the way we do business. I, I really feel strongly about that. Yeah, likewise, I agree. Absolutely. Yeah, there's a lot of beautiful things that are happening in terms of um, creating businesses and operating them as medicine, you know, mm. and, and changing the old paradigms of competition and having more collaboration and purpose and um, 
internal culture that also reflects the teachings of the medicines and the way that you treat employees and the way you pay them and the way you phrase things and the way you, you offer vacation time, for example, and the way you create meetings and, um, you know, can you create ceremony within your business? You know, there's a lot of really interesting pieces that happen when you start looking at business like a ceremony and how do you create those spaces that are uh, deeply nourishing for the human soul. I find that business can be a really large vehicle for transformation in that sense. Um, is there a parting thought that you'd like to share to whoever's watching right now? Oh, it's been such a wonderful uh, conversation. And Pascal, you ask really good questions. Some of them very oh, thank much, you. Um, yeah, require a lot of thought. So thank you. Uh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Really, like they're, they're big questions and I love that. It's good to stretch and to, and to think about what the future can look like and how we can apply it now. And that's, that's all like, this is one big integration ceremony essentially, right? <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah. And thank you so much for the work you're doing and the beautiful thoughts you share today and perspectives and hope we can, um, engage people in some curiosities and, and explorations of their own and, and love to hear back from people around the, the topics that we discussed. So thank you so much, Amanda, and um, uh, thanks for connecting and looking forward to, to more. Thank you, Pascal. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.